Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, cancer, and suicidal ideation. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, don't hesitate to call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. On January 9th, 1993, Jean-Claude Roman put his arm around his wife Florence's shoulder. A pharmacist, she'd just gotten off the phone with her mother after a difficult conversation. However, Jean-Claude couldn't focus on consoling Florence. On the inside, he was panicking. Jean-Claude squeezed his wife tighter, hiding the fear spread across his face. His heart pounded. Sweat broke out above his brow. The room started to spin until Jean-Claude blacked out. The next thing he knew, Florence was laying in bed. Blood pooled beneath the pharmacist's head, staining their pillows. He was standing above her with a bloody rolling pin and a plan. Nobody was going to find out the truth. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill, We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to assist Alastair with some medical insight into our first installment of the case of Jean-Claude Ramond. Not really a doctor, not really a good husband, but really quite good at spinning a really great yarn. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Jean-Claude Roman, a French con man whose antics turned deadly in the 90s. Today, we'll discuss Jean-Claude's ruse as a prestigious doctor and investor We'll detail his biggest schemes and the deaths that came in their wake. Next time, we'll follow his murderous path and the baffling actions that followed. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight 
starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Twenty-one-year-old Jean-Claude Roman lay awake in bed, staring at the ceiling as his alarm clock rattled on. It was finals week. He had to pass today's test to enter his third year of medical school. But Jean-Claude couldn't care less. He hadn't been outside in days. His friends had been taking their exams, enjoying the weather and going out to clubs. But Jean-Claude remained bundled up in bed, heartbroken. His girlfriend had dumped him. Her name was Florence Crolet, and he'd been in love with her since he was 14. He loved her so much, he followed her all the way to medical school, according to author Emmanuel Carrère. Now, in the spring of 1975, they both attended the same academy in Lyon, France. But they were no longer together. Florence said she needed to focus on her studies. She had no time for romance. Her priorities were all wrong. Jean-Claude had moved to Lyon, bought an apartment, and spent two years in a rigorous program, all to be with her. Couldn't she see how much he loved her? Perhaps he was rethinking medical school entirely. After all, becoming a doctor was never his life's dream. Without Florence, Jean-Claude likely saw no reason to take his final exam. If he changed his mind about being a doctor, he could take the makeup test in September. He stayed in bed for the rest of the day. Jean-Claude trudged through the next few weeks, his whole life a meaningless haze without Florence. But once summer rolled around, his med school friends got sick of him being a recluse. One evening, they dragged him out of the house and to a nightclub. Jean-Claude tried to have a good time, but all the happy young people dancing and smiling seemed to bring his thoughts back to Florence. Perhaps hearing the songs they used to dance to made his eyes sting. In between songs, he told his friends he was going outside for a cigarette. His friends were so busy partying that they didn't notice when Jean-Claude didn't return for hours. It wasn't until he approached them on the dance floor that they realized something was wrong. And by then, it was too late. Jean-Claude was completely bloodied, scratched, and bruised. He said gun-wielding strangers accosted him and stuffed him into the trunk of his car. Then, they jumped into the car and sped off. He jostled in the trunk until they stopped. They yanked him from the trunk, threw him to the ground, and beat him senseless. In the end, they didn't even take his car. They simply left him on the side of the road about 30 miles away from the club. Fortunately, he was able to drive himself back. Horrified, Jean-Claude's friends barraged him with questions. 
How many assailants? Where'd they drive to? Jean-Claude couldn't answer these questions, which only worried his friends more. They took him home for the night so he could recuperate. However, his friends didn't realize there probably wasn't an actual cause for concern. 18 years later, Jean-Claude recalled this incident to psychologists. He told them, quote, I didn't know what was true or false anymore. I have no memory of an actual attack. I know it didn't happen, but I don't remember faking it either. Tearing my shirt or scratching myself, I must have done that, but I don't recall it. I believed that I'd really been attacked. When there is a mental and physical trauma, sometimes it's difficult to know the chicken from the egg. A medical evaluation would be the place to start to solve this timeless dilemma of which came first. Jean-Claude was suffering from factitious disorder, a condition where people who worry excessively develop feelings of high anxiety. It manifests as irritability, extreme mood changes, and social withdrawal. This exaggerated anxiety sets off the fight-or-flight response and a boatload of cortisol and adrenaline. This attack creates physical reactions, which range from muscle tension, headaches, pain, and restlessness. Doctors can recognize these injuries as stemming from a fictitious disorder when the injuries don't match with the patient's story or observing the agitation or anxiety levels to be overly exaggerated and asking about any recent history of the risk factors I've mentioned. Jean-Claude was able to disguise his injuries because no one around him knew that something bigger was going on. Especially since immediately after this incident, Jean-Claude's mental health declined further. His despair confined him to his apartment. Life without Florence was just too unbearable. The weeks slogged by, and soon it was time for Jean-Claude's makeup exam. But again, he stayed in bed. Later that day, Jean-Claude's parents called and asked how the test went. He found himself faced with a choice. Tell them the truth and disappoint them, or lie and make them proud. He told them the exam went well, and his parents were thrilled for him to embark on his third year of medical school. After he hung up, Jean-Claude realized how easy that had been. So later, he told his friends the same thing. The exam went well. When the next trimester started, he re-enrolled as a second-year student, but to keep up with his lie, he also bought all the same textbooks his third-year friends had. He figured no one would be the wiser. The young medical student never had to worry about discussing course material with his friends or the fact that he wasn't present in lectures because he was still bedridden and skipping class. But now, it wasn't only heartbreak that caused Jean-Claude to isolate himself, but the crushing weight of his spiraling lies. He constantly worried that someone would catch on and call his bluff. Over time, trash piled up in his home, and he ate nothing but canned food. His friends still believed his depressive state had to do with Florence. Finally, in December, one friend named Luc Ladmiral couldn't take it anymore. He showed up at Jean-Claude's door and tried to get him to snap out of it. They were going out to have some fun. Jean-Claude reluctantly agreed. 
The pair hopped into Luke's car with no set destination. As they cruised past the Sans River, Luke spouted breakup cliches. He told Jean-Claude that girls are fickle. Jean-Claude felt bad for making Florence look bad. He might have even considered confessing to Luke, but his stomach twisted as he imagined his more successful friend chastising him and the domino reaction it would cause. All his other friends would find out he lied. Florence would find out. The truth wouldn't set him free, as much as he wished he could brush the whole ordeal under the rug. That's when he had the idea to tell one final lie to put it all to rest. Jean-Claude racked his brain as Luke waxed poetic about other fish in the sea. Then, Jean-Claude blurted out, I have cancer. Coming up, Jean-Claude Roman's snowballing lies get him everything he wants. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In the late 1970s, Jean-Claude Raman lied about being admitted into his third year of medical school in Lyon, France. To cover up this ruse, he spun another lie, that he had cancer. Jean-Claude's friend Luc was stunned. He thought that Jean-Claude had been skipping classes and holing up in his room because he was heartbroken over his ex-girlfriend Florence. Luc's stomach sank as he considered the revelation. Jean-Claude, however, felt a weight lift from his shoulders. Now, no one would question why they didn't see him in classes. The lies kept rolling off his tongue from there. He told Luke that he had lymphoma because he figured that was an easy cancer to fake. Lymphoma, a cancer of the lymphatic system, can have a good prognosis depending on the specific type and stage of this illness. Low-grade lymphomas are often treated with radiation therapy, intermediate cancers are treated with aggressive chemotherapy, and high-grade lymphomas are treated with chemotherapy and bone marrow transplantation. 
Patients undergoing therapy for these lymphomas can experience nausea and vomiting, neuropathies, chemo brain, hair loss, and fatigue. No one challenged Jean-Claude about his intestinal symptoms and fatigue, since he's all lined up with expected reactions to known lymphoma treatments. Still, Jean-Claude asked Lou to keep his lymphoma diagnosis a secret, especially from Florence. He probably knew Luke would tell her anyway, but didn't want the news coming from himself. He didn't want people to think he was looking for attention. Sure enough, the news spread like wildfire, and Jean-Claude couldn't have been happier with the outpouring of sympathy. His peers praised his courage. Most importantly, Florence praised his courage. And before long, she came back to him. She couldn't let him go through cancer alone. With his girlfriend back by his side, Jean-Claude felt whole again. Now that people were more concerned with his cancer diagnosis than anything else, Jean-Claude was finally comfortable enough to start attending his classes. Soon, he no longer felt the need to maintain his cover-up. And he shared the news that he was in remission. Things went back to normal until they didn't. For the next two years, Jean-Claude convinced Florence that he was working toward his medical degree. In reality, he took second-year coursework over and over again. We don't know how Jean-Claude managed to keep up this charade, but he must have done a good job because he and Florence got engaged. Their relationship was much more solid this time around. Within a few years, they were married and had their first child. During this time, they both continued their educations. Florence eventually graduated and became a pharmacist. Unbeknownst to her, Jean-Claude secretly retook his second year of medical school for 12 years. It's not clear why he repeated the same year instead of taking the exam he needed to advance, or how no one noticed. Training to become a physician takes forever, or it seems so when you're living this experience. Believe me, I know. Personally, I'd become suspicious if someone were to take more than two years to complete any given year of training. I would guess that doctors who repeat a year of training would be considered high risk and shown the door. I also believe most of my colleagues would give you the same answer. Medical school in the U.S. is a four-year curriculum and is generally followed by a residency and sometimes a fellowship. This journey for most doctors is roughly 10 years, unless you do a surgical residency, which can add an additional three years, and for neurosurgeons, they're in for another seven years. Jean-Claude was lucky because he trained in France. If he had matriculated in the U.S., it would have been a longer journey, more expensive, and less forgiving. It does seem like Jean-Claude wasn't worried about 14 years of tuition, perhaps because he lived in an apartment his parents bought for him. Jean-Claude might have planned to continue his second year of med school forever. But in 1986, someone finally did realize what Jean-Claude was doing. That year, he attempted to register as a second year for the 13th time, but an administrator noticed Jean-Claude's continual re-enrollment. Before he could pick his classes, the administrator requested a meeting. Lightly spooked by the school's sudden attention, 
Jean-Claude didn't show up. Instead, he simply told his friends and family that he graduated. No, he wouldn't be walking across a stage and the diploma hadn't arrived yet. Still, no one seemed to question him. So, armed with a medical degree, the 32-year-old set out to find a job. He did have a wife and family to support after all. However, without actual qualifications, Jean-Claude faced major roadblocks. The pressure mounted. His family and friends expected him to embark on a promising medical career. He was supposed to be one of the special few, smart enough and skilled enough to save lives. So, his inability to find work raised eyebrows. Running out of time, Jean-Claude returned to his old trick, pulling things out of thin air. If he couldn't land a job, then he'd make one up. He did have to be somewhat strategic, though, because he knew this lie would go on for a while. Jean-Claude assessed what kind of job would be the easiest to fake. He couldn't fabricate patient stories all the time, nor force his family to relocate for a position that didn't even exist. Then he realized the perfect solution. A short drive from his home in Ferney Voltaire, France, was the city of Geneva, Switzerland. In Geneva was the headquarters of the World Health Organization, or the WHO. And the WHO does all kinds of things. Jean-Claude told people that he landed a role at WHO researching arteriosclerosis, a cardiovascular disease, and developing medications. The World Health Organization's mission is to provide leadership for global health matters. Specific research, like Jean-Claude claimed to be investigating for heart disease, is not their agenda. The research the WHO does conduct is only when there is a disease outbreak that has global implications, and they'll investigate what's causing the disease, identify who may be at risk, and create strategies for controlling it and preventing its recurrence. I could see how a pharmacist might not think to challenge his big lie, but with very little effort, anyone could see through his trickery. I can imagine how Jean-Claude likely created this deception. It was close to his new home, and it looked so impressive, so most would easily believe his story, except most doctors. But Florence did. In fact, not only did she believe her husband, she beamed with pride. She told their daughter Caroline that her papa was a super doctor. Jean-Claude ran with this. He was so pleased with all the praise that he seemed to get ahead of himself. He soon claimed that he also got a job teaching at a nearby university. And when he and Florence had dinner guests, he told stories of his encounters with important figures like the former French prime minister. Of course, he still had financial responsibilities, so Jean-Claude sold his old med school apartment. The profits helped him fake an income for some time. It seems that he and Florence either didn't share a bank account, or if they did, she never checked it, because her husband's income was never an issue for her. From the outside, it looked like Jean-Claude's life was going exactly according to plan. But in reality, Jean-Claude spent his days just killing time. He pretended to leave for work each morning, but instead drove into Geneva and found a rest stop or a cafe and flipped through magazines. 
Even though his daily life was mundane, Jean-Claude was still on edge. Fearing that strangers would start recognizing him, he was careful not to visit the same place too many times in a row. To make his act all the more convincing, he occasionally told Florence he was going on business trips, when really he would stay at a nearby hotel all alone. Of course, he never left the room. Otherwise, someone might spot him. And in all his anxiety, Jean-Claude did muster the courage to actually go into the WHO office from time to time. But if you think he did any medical work while there, think again. He meandered through the halls and stole basic office supplies, pens, notepads, anything with the WHO logo on it. He thought this made him look more legitimate. Eventually, being in the office gave him another idea. It occurred to Jean-Claude that if his family ever called the main office line and asked for him, the jig would be up. He explained that this was the easiest way for him to leave work at work and focus on the family. He gave Florence a beeper number, and if she ever paged him, he'd call her back himself. Not only did this prevent the issue of someone calling the office, but it made him look like a devoted family man. Win-win. Even though Jean-Claude seemed to cover all his bases, the profits from selling his old apartment started to dry up. The timing couldn't have been worse either, because in February of 1987, Florence gave birth to a second child, a baby boy named Antoine. Feeling the pressure of his financial responsibilities, Jean-Claude made a risky decision. He began withdrawing cash from his parents' bank account. He was careful never to overdraw the account so they wouldn't notice. But just like with his fake job, Jean-Claude knew he'd need to keep up with the scheme for a while. So he formulated a plan. Instead of siphoning his parents' money behind their backs, he would tell them he was taking it. He would not, however, tell them he was in financial trouble. The pretend doctor scheduled a chat with his parents. During this conversation, he told them that, as a WHO employee, he had access to high-yield Swiss investment accounts. He offered to invest some of their money. Now, the whole family could enjoy the perks of his lavish career. His parents paused to think. They were honest people, and foreign banks were a grey area when it came to their taxes. But their own son wouldn't do anything that could get them into trouble. Plus, they didn't mind growing their retirement fund. So they agreed. We can assume they gave their son thousands of francs. Jean-Claude probably rationalized his behavior and told himself he was doing the right thing. His parents wouldn't want their grandchildren to go hungry after all. He continued to pocket their money. They never had a hunch that he was being dishonest. In fact, the elder Romans trusted their son so much, they earned him a new client. Sometime around 1987, Florence's father, Pierre, retired. He approached his son-in-law and told him he'd heard about the promising investment opportunities he had access to. Pierre asked Jean-Claude if he could get in on it. Jean-Claude was happy to help. Pierre was pleased and gave him 378,000 francs. Jean-Claude deposited the money into his own account. 
About a year later, in October of 1988, Pierre wanted some of the money back. Jean-Claude panicked. He needed that money. He'd likely spent some of it already. Only Jean-Claude knows the truth of what happened next. According to Jean-Claude, he visited Pierre at home one day to discuss the investment money and to help with some chores, dutiful son-in-law that he was. It was just the two men at the house. After some small talk, Pierre went upstairs for a moment. Jean-Claude sat contently, waiting for his father-in-law to return, when suddenly he heard Pierre yell, followed by the sound of him tumbling down the stairs. Jean-Claude raced to his aid and found Pierre laying motionless at the foot of the stairs. He'd suffered a serious head injury. Jean-Claude called the paramedics and told them the older man had fallen and was badly hurt. The medics arrived shortly after, but by then, Jean-Claude knew it was too late. Pierre soon succumbed to his injuries. Jean-Claude had to break the news to his wife and children. Florence was beside herself. She couldn't understand how this happened. All her husband could tell her was that it was a tragic accident. She never had reason to think differently. After a medical evaluation, the fall was officially deemed an accident. Anyone hearing of the tragic accident that took Pierre's life would have believed this wasn't anything but an accident. When a physician would come upon a victim like Pierre, they would first assess him for head and neck trauma, specifically any bruising, bleeding, or paralysis. They would also consider the environment where someone died or if the victim was unstable due to underlying balance or gait issues. They checked to see if there were other injuries below the neck that might indicate foul play. It's likely we'll never know what actually happened to Pierre. Based on what happened next, it seems like Jean-Claude had concocted another lie. There's no evidence Jean-Claude spent any of Pierre's money on his behalf, like donating in his name or even on his funeral. As far as we can tell, Jean-Claude was free to spend the money how he wished, until it ran out. But of course, Jean-Claude had a new story. Around the time of Pierre's death, Florence's uncle was diagnosed with terminal cancer. One day, the topic came up between Florence's aunt and Jean-Claude. He said he could give her some hope. Apparently, he and his team at the WHO were working on a miracle cure for her husband's exact form of cancer. Florence's aunt listened with bated breath. Of course, her nephew-in-law, the brilliant doctor, could save her husband. However, Jean-Claude explained, the medicine was not available to the public. Luckily, he might be able to get some, for a price. Medications that are not available to the public are unavailable because they've not passed the required testing for a new pharmaceutical. So Jean-Paul's offer should have raised some red flags. Selling medications that are under development is a crime, and I've never heard of any such incident in my career. Jean-Claude should have won an Oscar for his acting because his scams were truly egregious. Florence's aunt and uncle were certainly convinced it was real. Now, they just had to be persuaded it was worth it. 
Jean-Claude said it cost 15,000 francs to produce one pill. That was no small hit to their retirement savings. Florence's uncle would need to take two pills to start. Then, after an unrelated operation, he'd need to take another double dose. So it'd be a grand total of 60,000 francs. Florence's aunt and uncle were torn. It was a high price, and it wasn't guaranteed to work. But what price wouldn't they pay for a few more years together? Eventually, they decided to try it. 60,000 francs later, Jean-Claude served them a placebo. Florence's uncle died within a year. It was a tragic end to this scheme. But Jean-Claude's attacks on Florence's family were only just beginning. Coming up, as Jean-Claude's emotions run high, someone pokes a hole in his lies. Now, back to the story. By the year 1990, Jean-Claude Roman had been faking a career as a medical researcher and swindling money from his family for years. His lies might have even led to the death of his wife Florence's father and uncle. The irony was that Jean-Claude once worshipped the ground Florence walked on. It's not entirely clear what changed, but now he stabbed her in the back at every turn. His next cruel move started after Florence invited her friend Corinne to dinner. Corinne was a divorced psychologist with two children. But by 1990, she'd become an outcast amongst their group of friends. She had a reputation for seducing married men. Florence thought this was unfair. The men Corinne was involved with were just as guilty, but they didn't receive the same backlash. Florence maintained her friendship with Corinne and would regularly invite her to join dinner with herself and Jean-Claude. But it seems Corinne lived up to her reputation because Jean-Claude fell in love with her. Worse, he decided to act on it. He wanted to spend more time with Corinne alone, which was tricky for two reasons. One, he had a wife and kids, and two, Corinne lived in Paris, about an hour and a half by plane from his home in Fenet-Voltaire. But just like he did every time he wanted something, Jean-Claude formulated a lie to get it. He started faking business trips to Paris. Once there, he rang Corinne, saying he was in town for his work with the WHO, a job that didn't exist. We don't know exactly when Jean-Claude and Corinne moved from friendly to flirtatious, but we do know that they had an affair spanning multiple trips to Paris. But soon, Corinne ended things because Jean-Claude was, quote, too sad. Jean-Claude was distraught. He stopped going to Paris and started moping around the house. Florence noticed that something was wrong. She approached him about it, but he, of course, couldn't tell her the truth not only for the obvious reasons, but also due to the fact that all the airline tickets to see Corinne had drained Jean-Claude's bank account faster than ever. Unsure of what else to do, Jean-Claude fell back into an old favorite lie. He told his wife that his cancer was back. Florence was shocked and scared, but for everything she was feeling, 
She knew that their two children would feel it even more. The couple decided that, in order not to upset the children, they wouldn't tell them about their father's illness. More than likely, Jean-Claude came up with this idea so he wouldn't have to work as hard to keep up the lie. Ironically, the cancer gave him more freedom. He claimed to be too ill to get out of bed, so Florence didn't expect him to go to work. He didn't have to hide in cafes and rest stops anymore. When Florence left for the day, he'd stay home, relax, and call Corrine. The two had stayed in touch platonically after their breakup. They were each other's confidants, and Jean-Claude made sure to elicit Corrine's sympathy over his cancer diagnosis. During one of their chats, Corrine revealed that she might have a way to lift Jean-Claude's spirits. Apparently, she'd come into some money, and she wanted his help investing it. She thought it would benefit them both. She'd grow her wealth, and he could get back to doing something he enjoyed helping someone manage their portfolio. Jean-Claude couldn't have agreed more. Around the spring of 1992, Jean-Claude took off to Paris to meet with Corinne about her investments. He was rattled with anxiety. The flight was another expense. His bank account was even closer to being overdrawn. His parents, while they didn't know it, were nearly broke as well. And Florence's father who'd given him so much money, was dead. This left him with one option, to steal Corrine's money. Looking out the plane window, he wondered how much longer he could keep this all up. Corrine ended up giving Jean-Claude 900,000 francs. Still, it did nothing to quell his anxiety. Corrine could easily ask for the money back like Pierre had, and yet... Jean-Claude spent the money quickly. And, just as he feared, Corrine decided that she wanted to scale down her investment. Jean-Claude was petrified. He told Corrine he was too bedridden from his cancer treatment to go to Geneva and withdraw the money. Corrine was furious. She shouldn't have to wait for him to get her money. He agreed to get it for her soon. Corrine hung up angry but Jean-Claude didn't care, because he'd already come up with a plan to never have to return Corrine's money. Jean-Claude felt that he'd conned his way into a tight corner and there was no way out. And that corner was only getting tighter. As December came to a close, someone from the kids' school tried to get in touch with Jean-Claude at work. They searched the WHO's directory, but couldn't find any trace of the doctor. When the person told Florence about this, Florence shrugged it off. It was weird, but there must be some explanation. Around the same time, while waiting for her children to come out of school, Florence struck up a conversation with another mother. She too had a husband that worked at the WHO. She asked Florence if she was attending the upcoming office Christmas party. Florence, embarrassingly, had no idea about it. We don't know if Florence confronted Jean-Claude about this, However, we can assume Florence at least began suspecting that her husband was hiding something. As Florence grew suspicious, Corrine badgered Jean-Claude for her money. He visited her in Paris to discuss withdrawing the funds. Over dinner, they agreed that Jean-Claude would give it to her a couple of weeks after the new year. He believed 
he wouldn't be alive to answer for his lies. He planned to end his life after one last Christmas with his kids. But when the holiday came around, Jean-Claude couldn't enjoy it. His head was pounding the entire day. He couldn't hear his kids' laughter over the constant ringing in his ears. Jean-Claude was now swimming in a stress pool. His cortisol levels were elevated, his anxiety kept him from sleeping, which produced more cortisol, and he was about to finally get caught. He was in an agitated state of paranoia. These elevated stress hormones also do create myriad symptoms, like headaches, ringing in the ears, diarrhea, palpitations, exhaustion, and shortness of breath. These symptoms result from the cortisol activating the sympathetic nervous system, which is that side of our system that speeds up our metabolism. And this reaction is to service our ability to race away from whatever is threatening us, like a bus coming at us or a wife about to discover you're a fraud. The weight of Jean-Claude's fabricated life was now eating away at his health. Jean-Claude didn't improve after Christmas, suffering from more suicidal ideation on top of his physical symptoms. He grew more on edge the Monday after New Year's. His mother called him and said her bank account was overdrawn. She asked if he knew how that could have happened. Jean-Claude claimed not to know and said he'd call the bank and handle it. He told her he would transfer money into her account if he could. In reality, he just needed his mother to think everything would be okay. That way, he could carry on with his plan. The next day, he went to the pharmacy. He told the pharmacist that he needed sedatives for his research at work. The pharmacist took his order and said it'd be ready by the end of the week. After visiting the pharmacy, he went to a gun shop, purchased several items, and gift-wrapped them. By the end of the week, his pharmacy order was ready. He picked up the drugs and went home. That evening, he had a cozy night in with his family. After the kids went to bed that night, Jean-Claude and Florence stayed up. That's when Florence received a call from her mother. While on the phone, Jean-Claude heard Florence's voice turn concerned. Her mother was apparently feeling lonely and dissatisfied with her life. Her husband's passing had left an unfillable hole. Florence tried to console her. After some time, the two hung up, but Florence was so heartbroken by her mother's state that she sat down on the couch and cried. Jean-Claude took her into his arms. At some point, Florence started drinking. Perhaps Jean-Claude gave her some wine to relax after the stressful call. Writer Emmanuel Carrère proposed that perhaps the alcohol eventually put Florence to sleep. It's unclear how Jean-Claude spent the rest of his night, but the next morning was one no one would ever forget. As the sun rose on January 9th, 1993, Jean-Claude stood over Florence, still sound asleep in their bed. He gripped a rolling pin in his hand. He likely thought about how he had been in love with her since he was 14 years old. All of his lies, to an extent, were meant so that he could live up to what she deserved. It wasn't her fault 
that she married a man as dishonest as he. Maybe he didn't think she should have to live like that anymore. Jean-Claude raised the rolling pin above his head and brought it down swiftly onto his wife's skull. Soon, Florence Crolet Ramon was dead. Jean-Claude was horrified by what he had done. There was no going back now, especially when his children woke up a short time later. He thought it would be too cruel for them to know that he killed their mother. He knew they shouldn't live in such a horrible world. Today's episode dealt with intense themes of suicide and mental health-related issues. If you or someone you know is going through a crisis, you can contact the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at 988, or you can speak to them online at 988lifeline.org. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. Next week, Jean-Claude continues his plan to make sure his family never finds out who he really is. For more information on Jean-Claude Roman, among the many sources we used, we found The Adversary, a true story of monstrous deception by Emmanuel Carrere, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Brandon Rizzuto, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Maggie Admire fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. Medical Murder stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Catch a new episode of Cold Cases every Monday. Listen free only on Spotify.